it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. The Bigger Picture. Going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose joining me for The Bigger Picture. Today is Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, where would you like to begin today? I think we've got to start with uh, a recent article uh, by Alastair Heath in the Daily Telegraph. It is uh, headed, The Horrifying Truth behind the coming collapse of um, Basket Case Britain. Um, it, it's, it's a stunning article, and it's stunning um, because it paints such a bleak picture. Ultimately, um, it, it, it basically suggests that if the Conservative Party and indeed the Labour opposition, oppositions have a huge impact on, on governments, if our political class do not get their act together, and if we do not push forward and modernise and open up our economy and capitalise on Brexit. And if we don't push through an awful lot of more market-oriented um, supply-side reforms, then Britain is going to be in unspeakable trouble. We're already, as he points out, in a lot of bother because we do have um, looming power cuts. We've got rocketing inflation, rocketing bills, water shortages, really poor public services. I mean, the, we've touched on before the, the NHS waiting lists, um, the poor crime clear-up rate. Um, in eight out of 10 areas of Britain, uh, the police actually have struggled to solve any decent number of burglaries at all. Um, taxes are at their highest for 70 years. You know, so we, we, we have a pretty um, steep decline if we're not careful. And really what he's, he's arguing is that things were turned around by Margaret Thatcher and John Major, but then when it came to Tony Blair, um, Gordon Brown, um, David Cameron and Theresa May, um, basically Britain has been operating uh, on a lot of self-delusion or platitudinal twaddle. And and that actually we've got to get back to the basics. And that means actually having a really strong, properly regulated, but privately led and private invested in uh, utility sector, uh, not a world where, by the way, these private companies play the regulators mm. um, and often stitch things uh, for their own commercial interests, but properly regulated. Uh, we need lower taxes. We need to go for high growth. We've got to get over the, the sort of problems associated with uh, nimbyism or not in my backyard. We've got to uh, build a lot more housing. Um, we've got to have a lot smarter, better and less regulation. Um, and, and, and so it goes on. Um, now, he is, I have to say, pessimistic. He thinks that the Bank of England have not uh, uh, fared well that our public services are in huge uh, crisis, that money will no longer paper over the cracks. You need really substantive reform. And that um, it is highly unlikely, I think he thinks, 
that our political class um, are up for the sort of reform that's needed. So he's sort of suggesting um, that we continue on what Hayek, the Nobel laureate in economics, called way back in the mid-1940s, the road to serfdom, um, and that um, and that whoever wins the leadership of the Tory party uh, has got one hell of a struggle on their hands as prime minister. He also points out that the, 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 the sort of private companies, for instance, like the water companies, who each have a monopoly in their area, as you say, they're gaming the regulator. But what that leads to, of course, is, is um, calls for them to be privatised rather than regulated, sorry, to nationalise rather than regulated properly, even though, of course, the reason they were privatised in the first place is that they were useless as a nationalised company. Indeed, they were. And you know, he's right to point it out. He details it. Um, uh, for example, the water companies, uh, there were perpetual um, 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 hosepipe bans when the water companies were nationalised. Um, the sewerage system was in a massive state of disrepair. Yeah. The real reason the water companies were, were privatised was that they needed so much investment. Um, and if I remember correctly, it was £16 billion, pounds, um, so that they came up to the, the, the levels that statutes and regulations required of them. And, uh, you know, but, but the problem always with state regulation is that it requires a lot of knowledge of the subject. Mm. And often you end up where people who formerly worked for the companies and had the expertise then go on, if you will, for second careers in the regulators. And so you sort of get, you know, poachers come gamekeepers or gamekeepers come poachers. And, 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 and you get what is technically called by economists regulatory capture, which means that the sort of, int- you know, the sort of regulators are mm. captured by the sort of people with the sort of mindset that have been prevalent in industry, and the two actually end up conniving. Yes. Because well, clearly they- there hasn't been enough investment. I mean, I read with shock and horror, I confess, there hasn't been a new reservoir built in this country in over 30 years, despite the fact, I don't know what the figures are of 30 years, but in the last 20 years, I was reading this week, I mean, eight, there are 8 million more people in this country, many through immigration, something we're going to discuss um, later. But I mean, you know, if there are more and more people, you need to provide the infrastructure. It's it's vital. Um, and well, without that, of course, no wonder we've got Britain where everybody keeps saying nothing's working at the moment. Indeed. And this takes us to the world of supply side reform, because um, I mean, I think there are, there are two reasons for this. One is that, that, that when these companies were privatised in the 1990s, um, they were in such a state of underinvestment and disrepair. It's actually taken a lot of money, a lot of time to, mm. to shore up a lot of the, the infrastructure that was frequently laid down, let's be clear, by the Victorians and the yes. you know, I mean, water companies have been replacing lead pipes and things like that. So there's that aspect. And the other aspect is, for whatever reason, we just have not done any infrastructure, particularly well in the United Kingdom, for a very, very long time. We've said it many times before, it's seemingly impossible to get a new uh, runway for London, be it at Heathrow or wherever. It is very difficult to, um, to develop um, uh, lots more housing stock, much needed by young people who want to get onto the housing ladder. It is it's seemingly impossible to, um, to improve and make more environmentally friendly 
parts of the A303, for example, down the southwest. Yeah. How many years have successive British governments been talking about a tunnel or a bypass or something to ease the pressures around Stonehenge. Really important that that site is protected from the sort of pollution that it suffers and the slow traffic or the rest of it, none of which is environmentally effective or efficient. So there's that. Um, and it's and so it's the case. It, isn't it just remarkable um, that we have that expanded population, but we've had no substantive investment? But there are so many areas where we're not investing. Rather depressing, um, but a piece that's probably worth reading, depressing though it is. It doesn't seem to be wrong. I can't really tell which of the the two prospective uh, prime ministers might be the one to to tackle this. There doesn't seem to be that much discussion of you know long term uh, how to put all these long term problems right. We we got it from some of the sort of the candidates who fell by the wayside rather than the two who are still in the running. Um, we shall have to see, I guess, Tim. Let's take a quick break there and we turn to something where I feel you're going to be a little bit more optimistic. I do hope so anyway. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best, it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rhodes. You're listening to The Bigger Picture, where I'm in conversation with Tim Evans, professor at Middlesex University in London. Tim, you often point out to us that you're, uh, by nature, an optimist rather than a pessimist. You're going to talk about something where you actually feel um, uh, rather positive. So what's that? Indeed. Well, although I am um, uh, a Londoner, um, and I'm a Londonist in that I love diversity and inclusion and and, um, lots of different cultures and peoples mixing, um, I am also, uh, as anyone in my family will tell you, a huge and long-standing fan of Birmingham. I think Birmingham is a great city. It's Britain's second largest city, uh, certainly by population. Um, you know, it was one of the great powerhouses of industrial growth um, in the um, late Georgian and Victorian period. And it goes on to be an incredibly um, um, inventive, creative and innovative place. Um, it has fantastic public space. It's got a wealth of culture, orchestras, there's always a vibrant theatre life there. And of course, it's got all those extraordinary um, uh, canals. They've got 30 more more miles of canal, I think it is, or or eight more miles of canal than they have in Venice. And it goes right out to Hebden Bridge and it's absolutely gorgeous. So it was being a fan of Birmingham um, that made me turn on and watch. And boy, I was not disappointed. Uh, with the opening of the Commonwealth Games. Um, I have to say, you know, I've watched over the years, I don't know, when you watch an FA Cup final, you watch the Olympics, or you watch the Commonwealth Games over the years, you watch all these great sort of national and international sporting festivities. I have never in my life, I've watched, you know, the opening of right back to Moscow and Beijing and, you know, the Los Angeles. When, you, when you're my age, you've seen an awful lot of openings of Olympics. Goodness, I have never seen such a marvellous um, opening that showcased um, Birmingham um, 
uh, in all its splendor to the world as as happened with these commonwealth games um and it's just you know a wealth of creative i thought it was actually a better opening than britain achieved um I have to say during the 2012 olympics uh, the music uh the interplay of cultures the speeches um the they had this giant uh animatronic bull that sort of represented a major part of birmingham's um uh, history the whole thing was stunning uh that they showcased the history of the motor car industry there the future of technology it was fantastic and of course the commonwealth games for those uh who are wary of it it's somehow uh following on from the days of empire for those who are more bullish and think that britain and that empire can usher in a new age of sort of democracy and human rights mm. and universal values the sort of humanitarian and universalist causes then then they they remain i think bullish and optimistic and there's a very very good piece um in the guardian called the guardian's view on birmingham's commonwealth games a bullish experience and and i think that this editorial gets it right it was a great games uh, it was opened and it had a brilliant closing ceremony but it's all about the values the test for the commonwealth games moving forward is can they continue to bind together that that quarter or the third of the planet that associates as a family of nations together and can they um can they um really uh herald and help to spread some very very important values in the 21st century the the sad reality is this um too many countries in the commonwealth games still don't respect that sort of individualism which proclaims that really individuals should be who they who themselves mm. that could be quintessential themselves so for example too many nations in the commonwealth still um suffer from um various forms of policy or practice related to homophobia um so the appeal has to be for the core values of the commonwealth to be refreshed and renewed um it's also important i think that we're going to be seeing huge booms in population um in places like africa and in uh southeast asia places where there are lots and lots of citizens um who are who who you know who are in the commonwealth um this is a huge opportunity but i think in the next 10 years um either the commonwealth is going to go on and prosper and grow and continue to do great things and it's going to and that's going to be you know we're going to celebrate that in the sorts of festivities that we've just seen the sort of sporting event or we're not going to be able um to uh imbue our friends and families with the sort of values of democracy and freedom and rule of law and allowing people to be who they want to be and overcoming racism that there will still be all kinds of sectarianism um um and 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 intolerance and if that were to persist then i think the commonwealth and the commonwealth games will get into trouble they won't last the course of the middle of this century so many of those problems with the commonwealth games are, are exactly the same problems are reflected in the commonwealth it 
itself by the sound of it. I was interested in the article that the next games are going to be in Australia in 2026, which is going to be this sixth time they've hosted. Only two have ever been held in Asia. I and mean, no, you talk about Africa and burgeoning population, but the Commonwealth Games has never been held in Africa. That's so right. It was due to it was due to be, wasn't it? And Birmingham had to take it on at the last, well, not about the last minute, but you know, with relatively short notice. Exactly. And one hopes that um, that although Australia is uh, going to have the Commonwealth Games again next time, one hopes that with the sort of burgeoning uh, and youthful populations in Asia and in Africa, and with the sort of rise of the African middle class that, that is indeed developing, um, that Africa will be able to develop the sort of infrastructure um, and the sort of ecosystems, if I could put it like that, that are required to host such um, a, a large and formidable event. Um, that's the challenge. Um, and it's almost a sign that if we can get Commonwealth Games um, in Africa and in Asia, it, it will be a self-fulfilling prophecy, mm. prophecy and it will herald by, it, by, their, by their own nature in and of themselves the good things that they're doing. Yes. If we don't have games in those parts of the world, particularly in Africa, then I think the question mark will remain over really what is the Commonwealth about. But but these big game ceremonies are horrendously expensive. I mean, history of the last three decades, it was littered with cities that host these games in a spirit of great optimism and then find out that it's a, an arbitrage around its neck and can in some cases actually bankrupt a place. Yeah, and, and, and that's where um, you're absolutely right. Um, when you don't do it well, when you don't have the right sort of uh, economic agenda, and when you don't see it as part of your uh, own reputation management, your own growth strategy, and you don't see it therefore as an investment, it become it can become an, uh, you know a millstone, um, and it can cost a fortune. So the question is, is it a cost or is it an investment? Well, the truth is, to host such a big games can be can be one or the other. The challenge and the opportunity is to find places in Asia and Africa who are ambitious, who are where, where they're on the up, where they can afford to host such a venture and where they turn it into an investment and they spur from it more um, economic, mm. uh, you know, foreign direct investment, uh, more education, uh, more tourism. There's an awful lot that can come. London, I think we got it right. London did cost a lot, but it was a showcase to the world tourism, investment, right across the board, um, London benefited, the UK benefited from hosting the Olympics. And, um, and we also have an extraordinary um, uh, uh, legacy agenda there. Um, so there are opportunities. The question is, when will friends in Africa and Asia step up to that plate and when will they not be saddled with the burdensome and costly side of these things? When will they turn it into an opportunity and they prove that they can make it the investment that we hope they will? Thank you, Tim. Well, uh, let's turn then to our last topic, um, one to which I referred um, slightly earlier because it seemed to uh, somehow sort of impinge on our first piece, the Alistair Heath um, article in The Telegraph. Where are we going now for our final topic? So um, anyone who is familiar with my personal Facebook um, account um, uh, will know that prior to the 
Brexit vote. And ever since, I have argued that anyone who thinks that Brexit is going to deliver uh, a significant reduction in immigration, or who thinks that Brexit is about immigration, uh, is quite frankly um, um, heading for a fall. Um, Brexit uh, can provide Britain with huge opportunities, but those opportunities will be global. And whereas an awful lot of immigration in recent decades had indeed come from within the European Union, specifically uh, many partner countries in Central and Eastern Europe, um, partly because of the collapse of um, socialism um, in that region um, at the end of the 1980s and the beginning of the 1990s. Um, uh, Britain does require a lot more immigrants, in my view, um, uh, but now being outside of the European Union, uh, Britain's economy is indeed tilting uh, uh, towards the rest of the world. It is, it is, there are signs, there are the green shoots of a global Britain, and this is being reflected in the immigration numbers. So, so now um, we are seriously starting to fill an awful lot of jobs um, with foreign workers and with workers from places a lot further flung than Romania or Slovakia or Poland or whatever. And uh, this is, I think, not only good news for our economy, um, because I think in any vibrant, dynamic global economy, you have lots of people moving around. You, first of all, you have your own people you know, moving overseas, but you also have lots of new people enriching your culture and your economy um, with their ideas and experiences coming in. But this is also having, I have to say, a very positive impact on education. There's, again, lots of data showing um, that, um, that the numbers of overseas students coming to Britain um, uh, is starting to rise again. Um, and so this is not simply, you know, people from the European Union. We're getting lots and lots and lots of students coming now from China, India, Nigeria, Pakistan, the United States, and other nationalities. And let me tell you, between 1919 and 1921, if we look at the top five nationalities who've been grant, uh, granted sponsored study visas, so in those three years, 1919, 20, and 21, number of people from China coming with those visas is up by 47%, India is up 90%, Nigeria 236%, Pakistan 173%, US 87% and other nationalities 102. So all those people who said that somehow Brexit will lead to Britain sort of becoming an isolated, uh, right-wing, um, xenophobic, cut off from the rest of the world um, country, um, we can now very safely say uh, they are empirically and demonstrably wrong. We have to go back to the point we discussed in our first topic today, is that if the population of the country is increasing, I mean, we're talking about net, net migration, not just yep. immigration, aren't we? Um, then infrastructure planning has to be improved, because otherwise, whatever uh, benefit to the economy the uh, migrants will bring 
you know, if it actually leads us to a, a fall in social cohesion or to, you know, political unrest, that's hardly a, a benefit for the country as a whole. And, you know, as you say earlier, we are simply not building enough houses, we're not building enough hospitals, we're not, we're not building reservoirs. I mean, you know, eventually it's going to get to, to a breaking point, surely. And, and I, I suggest we're at that point. I suggest that post-COVID and with the war, um, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we're now at that point. And I've heard um, interviewers on national television and radio in the last week on three occasions ask, well, whoever is going to be the Conservative Prime Minister, things are so bad, does anyone now really want to be Prime Minister of, of this country? Mm. And that comment, whether it's humorous or a throwaway remark, is nevertheless illustrative of just how dire things are and what a challenge the next six months or year is going to be economically and socially. And for me, this is less about, um, you know, uh, very shouty, loud public policies in specific mm. silos like water or like electricity or like housing. I think what the government does, whoever is the next prime minister of this country and, and whatever the government are about, they have to make sure that they have the firm legal basis with which to bring in lots more private investment to our infrastructure, mm. but that they have the powers to drive through those major projects. Yes, I mean, I'll one put, of the problems is pension funds can't invest them because of EU regulations that haven't yet been abandoned. Exactly. Um, but, you know, uh, with respect, given the challenges we're facing, given that we are now becoming uh, more closely aligned with the global economy, um, and we've got lots more friends coming in, for example, from the countries I mentioned, um, um, it is very, very, very important um, that the government makes sure it has the powers. What do I mean by that? There's no point in the government planning and going part way for example, with a tunnel around Stonehenge only to be defeated in the courts because they hadn't done the consultation process uh, quite as they should. If there is to be a tunnel at Stonehenge or a runway at Heathrow, then to an extent, I think the government, it is now time to centralise authority and to make sure that the government has mm. the power, um, the, the power to unleash the potential of this country. We've had 30 years, if not more, of dithering around in infrastructure. If we now need to build half a million or a million more homes a year for the next five years, and we need two more runways, and we need to expand these 12 roads, and we want these mini nuclear power stations to show yes. up our energy supplies. Fracking, yes. Fracking, whatever so it is, yeah. Um, and and we want to do that because we want to be a global Britain and we want lots of people moving around and we want to grow and fund our healthcare and welcome immigrants. So if we want to have our cake and to own the cake factory so we can go on eating mm. cake plentifully for the years ahead, well, we better get serious. If we don't want a good health system, if we want to be stuck in first gear in a traffic jam, and therefore pollute the planet in a really unsavory and inefficient and costly manner. If we want to head towards social unrest, well, let's carry on as we are. 
but I'm coming off the fence and mm. I think more academics should. I think it is time to go for growth. I don't personally mind who does it. I don't really mind if it's Keir Starmer or Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak, but we're going to have to grow our way out of this if we're going to be serious about satisfying the needs of our population, um, remaining an outward looking and global enterprise and crucially ushering in a new world of high technology that will be more environmentally friendly and, mm. and more sustainable. You need money to do that. You need innovation. So we better get serious about growth. Tim, thank you very much. Fascinating as ever. I love the way it all links together. Um, thank you very much indeed to Tim Evans. He's Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim will be back with me again in a fortnight's time. That's it for The Bigger Picture for the moment. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.